Good morning, Dina Community Church. Thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, my name is David Brown, and if you have uh, been here for a few weeks, you're thinking, where is John Brown? Well, A, he's my brother, and I'm awfully proud of him. But B, he and along with a large group of folks from our church, they are in Israel. And so uh, there was a, a trip that was organized and quite a few folks were able to go. I think our group was numbered in the 20s and uh, they are waking up. Well, they're awake, but they are walking the ground uh, where our Lord walked. And so just excited for them, excited especially uh, for my brother. This is his first trip there. And so I can't imagine. I, I'm a big fan. I'm biased, but I'm a big fan of his preaching. And I'm just excited what God's going to show him because I think he's going to come back and there's going to be sermons in Technicolor because he's going to describe, he's going to describe the trees and he's going to describe the view and he's going to describe the moment. And I'm excited for that. I'm excited for him. And so would you join me in praying for them that God would give them mercies? It's obviously more than inconvenient to get COVID if you're over there. And so just pray that God would protect them, that God would give them an incredible, incredible trip and that God would tend to his sermon this morning, that he would uh, give us attentive ears and attentive hearts to receive from James and ultimately from the Lord what he would have for us. So would you, would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning and Father, we are, we are here to honor you. Father, we're here to hear from you and we're here to apply what you have to teach us. Um, Father, I pray that your word would be spoken clearly. I pray that uh, nothing of me would get in the way. I pray that you and you alone would be glorified and pray that uh, this would not simply be words on a page. Father, we're asking that your spirit would move in our hearts to do business with us this morning. Enlighten us that we may love you more, that we may follow hard after you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a great quote that I came across in the midst of my studies this week, and it's, uh, it's this one. It says, Satan tempts us in order to bring out the worst in us, but God allows us to be tempted in order to bring out the best in us. And if you were here last week for the first uh, message in James, you know that John spoke on trials, and it talks about how God uses trials for our good and for his glory. Amen? And so we have the opportunity to respond in faith to trials, it stretches us in ways that, that nothing else does. And at the end of the day, we grow in faith. We endure through these things. And at the end of the day, we're made complete and we're able to glorify our Heavenly Father. But a question this morning, have you ever gone through a trial and that wasn't the story of that trial? Because see, trials and testing also create the opportunity for us to respond poorly, don't they? But have you ever gone through a trial? Have you ever had something really hard happen in your life and you manifested anger towards those around you? That you allowed some bitterness to take root in your heart? Have you ever gone through a trial and questioned the goodness of God and wondered whether he's still sovereign, whether he's still on the throne? And so, see, trials are really, they're a fork in the road, right? They're an opportunity to respond in faith. But there's also an opportunity to respond basically with a lack of faith. And that's what the text is going to, that's what we're going to focus on this morning, is looking at where do those temptations to respond poorly come from? And then ultimately, how do we defend ourselves against those? And so that's going to be the focus of our sermon this morning. So, as you can see, I don't know if you saw the title of my sermon. Brian approached me this morning. He goes, man, you're bringing the hammer. Not really. It's just what the scripture says. That at the end of the day, it's not the trials that are the enemy. We are, right? It's, it's the sin that can come out of us during those trials. So first, let's do a quick preview. This is something that John has instructed me on. In previous life, I would just take you on a journey, not necessarily tell you where we're going. John said it's really helpful if you give people a roadmap. So, if John's watching live stream, hello John, and uh, this is for you. So, uh, the first thing we're going to do is look at James, and we're going to look a little bit about John's sermon last week, just to understand the context of where we are in the text, and we're going to review again the author, the audience, the purpose, and make sure we understand. 
Then we're going to look at verses 9 through 11, and it kind of talks the paradox of God's economy. God's kingdom is just full of paradoxes, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. Then verse 12 is a little bit of a bookend to what John spoke on specifically in verses 2 through 4 last week. That last week it talked about kind of the purpose of trials. And this week, verse 12, it talks about if we persevere through trials, that God rewards that. He rewards that faith and that faithfulness. But the focus of our sermon is going to be in verses 13 through 15. And it's going to talk about, again, if, if there are opportunities to be faithful in trials, there are also opportunities to be tempted to respond poorly. And is God the source of those temptations? And if not, what is the source? And then ultimately, what, what do we do to defend ourselves against that? And uh, so, yeah, and then last we'll do is we'll, like we always do, we'll try to apply the scriptures to our lives. We'll, we'll take a look at it and try to think, what would God have us understand? What would God have us feel? And what would God have us do? So let's dive into the review of, of James. And again, for those of you that were here last week, um, John did such a great job of giving us a sense of who James was. And he kind of, you know, brought it down to there's lots of James or Jacobs in the Bible. And so I just want to, honestly, this is straight from his notes, but I can't do it better than him. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He started out as a skeptic. If you'll remember, he grew up with, with Jesus, obviously, as his half-brother, and he didn't quite believe that Jesus was who he began to say that he was until he saw the resurrected Lord. And then everything changed for him. This man who authored this book, the words that we're going to hear this morning, he was there at Pentecost receiving the Holy Spirit for the first time and witnessing what God was doing in power. He knew all of the original apostles. He knew Paul. And he became not just an elder and a leader, but the elder and the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And so when issues arose that needed to have authoritative decisions made, oftentimes it was James, the author of this book, who spoke to those decisions. He was renowned for his righteousness and for his prayer, that he was a deep man of prayer. And then ultimately he died a martyr's death and they believe uh, in 62 AD. Now this book was written in about 45 to 48 AD. So if you think about it, that's not long after Christ's ministry, death and resurrection. In other words, these are current events in the life of this early church and in, those, in these communities. And then the purpose of James, I mean, I, I don't know if you've spent any time in James, but you know, Paul oftentimes in the first half of his letter, he really gets deep into theology. He really lays out an understanding of God. James is exceedingly pragmatic. James wants us to walk in faith, and he explains with great clarity what that means. And so James is the pragmatist. Uh, when it comes to the authors of the New Testament, and he's passionate for us to, to be faithful in that. I thought it was good. Dr. Constable had a quote. He said, the purpose of this potent letter is to exhort the early believers to Christian maturity and holiness of life. This letter deals more with the practice of Christian faith than with its precepts. And that's, that's kind of the theme of James. So let's dive into our text this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to James chapter 1. And let's go ahead and read verses 9 through 11. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flowers fall off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So the reality is the kingdom of God is filled with paradoxes. And if that's an old literary term that you think you studied once, but it's been a long time since you've actually thought about it, I pulled from the Oxford Dictionary the uh, definition here. <clears throat> it says a paradox is a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement which when investigated, may prove to be well-founded or true. And that really describes the kingdom of God because it turned the economy of this world upside down, and there's so many examples of this. You see it in um, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In order to live, we must die. 
we are only strong when we are weak. And obviously these are confusing statements, but to understand the kingdom of God, they're the things that we need to understand. And so John last week kind of started his sermon with the paradox, right? Is in verse two, it says, consider it all joy. And John kind of shared that if you imagine them listening to the letter being written, very, very excited to hear from James, the church father. And then he follows consider it all joy with when you experience many trials. That's confusing. That's odd. We don't tend to get excited about the hard things that come into our life. And we won't unless we understand the author and unless we understand the purpose, which was the whole passage of that text. Well, now he's going to present in verse 9, 10, and 11 another paradox. And he speaks specifically to, he says, believers of humble circumstances should glory in their high position. Now, the reality is this would have been a trial that would have been very, very real in the early church. These are people that were the Jewish Christians that were dispersed from their land. And the reality is they were dealing with tremendous poverty. At this time, there was a famine in the land. And we can see from Acts that there was a lot of persecution to the early church. And so they're not feeling proud. They're not gloating. They're not typically in positions of power. They're in positions of great humility. And yet what James is trying to communicate to them and what the entire New Testament communicates to us. By the way, have you ever, you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt just lowly? Have you ever felt just discouraged? you ever felt like you're in a culture that doesn't celebrate who you are and what you believe? And so we're to glory in that high position because this is who we are in Christ. We are a new creation. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. You, as a child of God, are an adopted son and daughter of the, of the God Most High. Did you hear that? You're a son or daughter of the God Most High. That's the identity that you have in Christ. So in the light of not having power, in the light of not having position or reputation, in the, in the light of not having resources, what could it possibly matter given the context of our true identity in Christ? And that's what he's trying to communicate to the early church. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged because of who you are in Christ. But he also has a message for the rich and the powerful. And it's interesting because commentators kind of debate on whether he's actually speaking to believers that are wealthy or whether he is speaking to the unbelieving rich. And, and honestly, I read several commentaries and they just tend to take a position right in the middle. Some believe one and some believe the other. And so if it's to the believing rich, what's the message? The message is a warning, right? It's an exhortation to not let your identity be in the things that you have or the position that you have or the power or the influence that you have because that's not who you really are. You're really a servant, a slave of Christ. But can we be apt to be influenced by things such as money and such as position and power? I mean, when we have the opportunity for gain, how much do we want it? And do we ever ask ourselves why? Why do we want it so badly? What is it in us that wants the promotion, that wants the title, that wants the raise? Because we're just apt to ascribe significance to the things that the kingdom of God doesn't. And I think there's a warning to believers to be very, 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 very careful as it relates to the way you perceive yourself and your identity in Christ because we're very susceptible to that. But if he's speaking to non-believers, ultimately it's a, it's a judgment. It's a terrifying judgment that basically as a non-believer, any joy, any power, any position that you're experiencing, this is it. And this is temporal. And this won't translate to the kingdom of God. And it's a judgment on the rich who are putting their identity and their significance in things that the kingdom of God does not. So verses 9 through 11, again, James is relating to a trial that they're likely going through. And he's trying to encourage them to understand their position in Christ. 
and be greatly encouraged. Now we're going to read verse 12. And verse 12 really is kind of a bookend of verses 2 through 4 that John spoke on last week. Because verses 2 through 4 really spoke to the why of trials, the purpose of trials. This is going to speak to, again, it's about trials and it's about those who endure or persevere well, but it's the reward that one has. So it says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now in Revelation 2.10, there's another reference to this crown of life. I'm going to go ahead and read this text. It says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. By the way, do you sense that persecution is on the rise? Do you read accounts? I know, Becca, you're really good to share accounts of brothers and sisters in Christ that are in other places in this world where there is a very, very high price to be paid to be a Christ follower in this day and age. And that's the trend, right? And of course, we shouldn't be surprised because Scripture is still telling us that things will get worse before it gets better. Amen? We know this. And yet, um, this is the word. So it says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So church of Dania, don't, don't be afraid. Why? Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, what exactly is meant by crown of life? And, and actually when it speaks to kind of the believer's rewards for being faithful, there's lots of different imagery that is used. And so you can see there sometimes it's precious metals, sometimes it's garments, sometimes it's crowns. Now, I started down this path of kind of studying a little bit on exactly what is meant by rewards. And that's not a sidebar sermon. That's a dedicated, focused Brother Brian or Brother John taking us down because there are commentators all over the place on exactly what that means and exactly how that works. But the reality is Scripture speaks to it. And there is some sort of, at the bame of judgment, there is the reality that our faithful acts are rewarded in some way that brings glory to God and brings joy to our hearts. And it has nothing to do with us and it creates no envy. And it creates no comparison because heaven won't be like that. But there's some opportunity to lay crowns at the feet of Jesus. And the things that we do in walking through trials faithfully bring reward in that. How exactly did that work? I'm really looking forward to hearing Brian and John speak on that in the uh, coming days. So we'll, we'll get that on the, on the calendar. But here's the concept, right? Here's the truth. The believer who endures trials demonstrates that he loves Jesus. Right? Because nothing brings out the truth of our affections for Christ more than hard times. Because if we deeply love Jesus, that comes out when we're broken. And if we don't, that comes out when we're broken. And so trials manifest what is already true in our lives and in our hearts. And so... Uh, I love this quote. It says, In no circumstances more than in trials does the presence or absence of love of God in a Christian become more apparent. You know, there was a time when I was on a plane and, you know, you never know who you're going to sit next to. You never know whether a conversation will be struck and where it'll go. But there was a conversation with a, uh, with a middle-aged woman and, and it just, it, you know, God allowed it to go a spiritual path. So we started talking about, we started talking about God. And she wasn't angry, she was just apathetic. And she said, you know, I, I grew up in the church and I, and I grew up in faith. And then I went through some really, really hard things. And when I went through those really, really hard things, um, yeah, God didn't, he didn't show up. And so largely I'm, I'm done with God. And that, that was her perspective. And so a very difficult trial entered her life and she had expectations of exactly how God was going to behave and how he was going to resolve that situation. And when those weren't met, she punted. She said, then that must not be a good God worth following. And that's exactly where the focus of our sermon is this morning. And that's exactly where James 
now takes the text. So let me go ahead and read verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So obviously trials give us the opportunity to respond well. And ultimately we manifest faith and God is glorified. But trials also give us the opportunity to respond poorly. And so this kind of unpacks. So is the temptation around choosing poorly in a trial of God? And of course, James's perspective is absolutely not. So let's walk through just kind of the logic of the text so that we can understand it. So God prescribes or permits trials for our good in his glory. That was verses two through four. That's almost the entire book of first Peter. That's almost the entire New Testament. That's the Bible, right? Is that we go through tribulation and God uses that for our good and his glory. However, every trial, every external difficulty carries with it a temptation for there's an inner enticement to sin. But God is not the source of that temptation, nor does he desire us to fail or to fall when going through trial and testing. So what is the source? It's us. It's our desires. It's our hearts. And what you see here, by the way, if John Piper does these things called labs, and they're available on YouTube. And if there is a particular text that you're, you're just un trying to understand exactly what the, the exegetical message in it. John Piper does these five to 20 minute exegetical messages where he just unpacks a scripture. This is actually the drawing that he did when he was kind of unpacking this text. And so basically there's this trial or testing that takes place in our life. And then there's an, an affection. There's a desire that comes out of us. And there can be a Godward orientation of that affection that leads us to respond in faith, that leads us to understand what God is trying to do, that leads us to ask God, would you do whatever you would have? And it leads to the growth of our faith and the glory of our God. But those desires or those affections can also be wayward, can't they? They can also be selfish. And that's kind of what he's saying is, so a trial or a testing comes in our life, there's an affection, and that affection can go one or two ways. And if those desires, that affection becomes evil or selfish, then it takes us down the path of sin and sin without repentance leads to what? It leads to death. So verses two through four talk about what happens when we respond well. But the reality is we don't always respond well because sometimes those desires become about self-preservation, don't they? Or they become about self-glorification. And that's when it goes poorly. So I want to, you know, to understand what this looks like in real life, I, I want to do a couple of things. I want to go and let's just look at some biblical examples of some testing and trials that these aren't stories. These are accounts of real men and these are accounts of real women and how they processed either in faith or in failure, the testings that they came across. And so... So let's first look at, at Job. If you remember the testing or the trial of Job, it's, the reality is it's more than most of us can even imagine because God had given Job favor and Job honored God and Satan came and accused what? He basically accused said the only reason you're blessing and honoring Job is because you're granting him favor, because life is good. And if life wasn't good, guess what Job would do? He would curse your name. And, and God allowed, he permitted a trial to take place in the life of Job that honestly, again, we can't imagine. Because if you know the story, right? If you know the account, he lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. And so you see what the natural response is because it almost comes immediately and it happens to be the voice of his wife. And she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. If God's not going to bless you, then just curse him and die. That's the manifestation of the sinful desire, right, of her heart. 
And what was Job's response at that time? The faithful response, the persevering response is, but he said to her, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then this is God's comment in scripture. It says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And again, it happens later where she says the same thing. And he says, will I not accept uh, good and not evil from God? And he did not sin. Now we know that as that trial went on, especially as foolish friends came into Job's life, God began, or Job began to defend his innocence. And he began to bring some accusation to God against God's justice. And ultimately, the end of Job is a rebuke, right? In which Job humbles himself. But you see the testing, you see the trial, and then you see the differing responses. Think about Abraham. So there's the opportunity where Abraham was traveling in foreign lands with his wife, Sarah, and she was very beautiful. Does anybody remember the account? And he was worried about his own life and his own welfare, right? So there's this test that could be this very real threat to him as it relates to how he handles the account or the, the, the relationship with his wife, Sarah. So how does he respond to that? He responds in self-preservation, doesn't he? He doesn't respond believing that God will honor. He doesn't respond believing God that will protect, that there's no danger of which God can't protect. What he does is he seeks to save his own skin. And he basically says, tell everyone you're my sister. And he did it not once, but what? He did it twice, which led to, which led to plagues which I can't imagine, the Bible doesn't go into it, but I can't imagine the relational trauma that existed from those accounts and the reality between Abraham and Sarah and what that was like, that there was an opportunity to respond to a test and he responded poorly. But then you see later, right? Because this is us, you see labor. Abraham, there's another testing and that testing is what? It's the sacrifice of their only child. And yet Abraham responds in what? He responds in faith, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so, Abraham, you see the testing, and you see him making decisions, the desires of his heart moving one way or the other. Or you think about Daniel. Daniel is a young man taken into Babylon, and instantly there's an opportunity to compromise, first with his diet, right? But he said he made a decision. Now, think about Daniel, and again, you put yourself in the life and in the shoes of Daniel. What's the potential consequence of disobeying the commander? I mean, it's certainly the loss of the favored status that they had. But 100%, it could be imprisonment. 100%, it could be death. And so it's not a hypothetical trial. Sometimes we read it and we don't emote or think about what they're actually dealing with. But Daniel's dealing with, with a, a very hard issue. And yet he made a decision that he would not compromise. And then God showed him favor now, ultimately, you see that that becomes foundational, right? Because when we go through testing and we go through trial and, and God shows himself faithful, what happens to our faith in the future? We get stronger, doesn't it? God builds on that. And so ultimately, you see it happen again when prayer is outlawed. And ultimately, Daniel finds himself in the lion's den because he would not stop praying. And then what's the ultimate end of that story? is that the king Darius actually decreed that the God of Daniel should be worshiped. Did God use that testing for Daniel's good and for his glory? In astounding and miraculous ways. But there were opportunities to respond poorly or respond well to that test. So then I started thinking about just you and I, because we live this every day, don't we? And so I wanted to walk through um, just some of the trials and the testing that we deal with and to think about the ways that we can process that. And I don't know whether these three categories, whether they're in your life right now, but I can almost guarantee that something is going on in your life right now. There is some sort of test or there is some sort of trial that you're dealing with and you're wrestling daily, hourly with how to respond and whether responding faithfully or whether respond selfishly. So look at marital conflict. Um, the only folks in here who have not dealt with this trial are those of you that are not married yet. And so you can uh, process this and pray for a future blessing. But for those of us that have been married for any length of time, you know that at times there's just conflict that arises. It's two selfish people living life together. And then hard things happen. And the reality is it creates division, right? So what do you do in that? Well. 
What does perseverance look like? What does enduring well look like? Well, of course, I'll just, I'll just love sacrificially, right? I'll just pray fervently and I'll just forgive freely. I mean, it's, it's that easy, right? But what's the natural manifestation oftentimes of our flesh? Yeah, but I want to be served. Or in this particular argument, I want to be right. And not just a little bit. And so there's this wrestling, right, that takes place. I know the right thing to do. And yet there's this fleshly response. And so how am I going to respond to that? So what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to demand our way. We're tempted to withhold love. Have you ever, I'm sure no one in here has ever done that, that you just become a little bit cold and just a little bit callous. Have you ever responded to a spouse that way? And that's not, that's not as God would have us respond, but we do that. Express impatience and anger, foster bitterness towards our spouse that can last days or weeks or months or years. And so when a testing comes in your marriage, we're given the opportunity to respond, to do exactly what God would have us do, to trust him that he can reconcile, that he can fix. I don't need to be right. I don't need to be served. I lay that down and I serve my spouse. And I pray fervently that if there's something that needs to be fixed, that God will fix it. And I walk daily in love and grace because that's what God would have me do. And in enduring in a trial well, it brings God, it brings God glory. And it builds my faith to trust that he'll walk me through the next marital conflict. It's just not easy. And that's why we have to be on our guard. What about financial challenges? I read an article this week that uh, inflation is at a 40-year high. And so the same dollar that we had yesterday is buying less and less every day. And there's, by the way, is going to the gas pump an emotional experience at, at this point? I mean, it, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I paid over five bucks a gallon this week. And so we'll, we'll, we don't all get to immediately go to our bosses and say, I'll just take a raise tomorrow, right? And so that becomes hard. And so it can be a source of, and so as we think about the coming weeks, as we think about the coming months, as we think about what does it mean to be under financial duress and how will we respond to that? Before I go here, let me say this. The church is a family and a family takes care of each other. And a family can only take care of each other if we're aware of the needs of the family. And it's a sad state that most of us, and I'm no different, we're very reticent to every share and need because it just makes us just a little bit embarrassed. And we don't want to communicate that I could use your help, but then the body can't be the body. And so let me just encourage you as we walk through whatever the coming weeks and months have, and if there's a financial duress happening in your world, would you please let Beth with caring hearts, would you let an elder know? Because there are folks here, God brings the body together to take care of each other. And there's a privilege and a blessing waiting for someone to be able to help. But it can only be done if, if that's made aware. So uh, what does perseverance look like in, in a financial struggle? I mean, as I read this, it's, it's just going to sound super easy, right? Well, just trust God. I mean, God is your provider, right? It's not your boss. It's not your job. So, so trust God. Just delay once, right? Delayed gratification. There's things that I just, I just don't need. There's a lot of luxury in my life that, that I, don't, I don't need right now, right? So I just simplify my life. I work diligently and I maintain generosity. I see a need and I meet a need. Even when things get a little bit scary. That's responding faithfully, right, to the trials of, of finances in our world. But what's our, our natural desire when, when money gets tight? A, it causes marital conflict, so see column A, right, because it's one of the most common sources of it. For God, to, and this is what we never say, but this is what is honestly very true in our hearts a lot of times. We want God to bless us just enough that we don't really have to depend on him. Because when we begin to have to depend on him, it gets what? It gets scary. And we don't like being scared. Generally, people are their worst when they're afraid. Fears bring out the worst in us. And financial stress brings out fear. And that fear can be manifested. So what are we tempted to do? 
We can be tempted to doubt God's provision. Will God really provide tomorrow? We worry and we stress. Anyone? Anyone ever worried or stressed on, on finances, right? I, I remember having Brooke, and she's an infant, and I'm already worried about college. Like, like literally, I can remember like laying there at night going, oh my gosh, in 18 years, how in the world am I going to pay? It's like, are you serious? It's not even the problem. It's not even today's problem. And I've got this whole life of God taking care of me. Do I believe that God would give me a child that I can't care for? Now, will my expectations of what provision may have to change? Yeah. But a lot of those are mine, right? We claim promises at times that are But God, will God provide for me? He will absolutely provide for me. Or we begin to think, well, you know what? I just need to stop being generous. I just need to stop giving because I just can't. Those are the kinds of things that happen in, in financial duress. And maybe the scariest of all is when health problems come. And again, if you're not dealing with one now, look back in your last three years and you probably had one. Or it, it's coming. It, it happens to all of us, even to the young. And so what does it look like to be faithful when you're waiting on a test, when you're waiting on the results of an exam, when you don't know what tomorrow holds from a health perspective? Well, number one, we're to trust God. We're to lift those fears up to God in prayer. We're to strive to be content and joyful, right? And we believe every day that our hope is in the next life that's not in this one, right? This is not the end of everything. And so I constantly remind myself of who I really am and what eternity means. And it won't always be pain and suffering. But what's our natural desire? Well, we just want to be perpetually healthy. I mean, if I could choose that, that'd, that'd be fantastic, right? Or when issues do arise, what do we want? I want to be healed now and I want to be healed completely, right? That, that's just, it. and again, oftentimes we don't say it because it, 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 but sometimes we think that way or we emote that way. Or we let frustrations with God come out because that really was my expectation. I just didn't say it. And then I can begin to question God's goodness and I can begin to become a little bit bitter. Or I just put my, my, my hope in this world. And I think this has to... I remember one time having health issues. They went through a battery of tests. There were some pretty scary things that could have been the outcome of that. And at the end of the day, it, they just couldn't find a diagnosis. And, well, that's not very comforting, right? Because the issues are still here, and yet there is no diagnosis. And, and I tell you, I don't know how many of y'all know Scott Talbot. Scott is a, is a member of this church. He's a doctor in town. He's my doctor. And I remember him looking at me in his office after I'd gone through all this chaos, all this effort, all this money to try to find the answer. And he said, you know what? my encouragement is don't spend the next few weeks and months and years chasing a diagnosis, spending every night thinking about what this is or what it could be. Trust God and go live your life. If a diagnosis finds you, then you'll come back to my office and we'll deal with it. We'll process it. But to spend every waking moment pursuing an unknown that may never be in a reality is wasted energy. And it robs me of joy. You know what? That wasn't medical counsel. That was spiritual counsel. And I needed it because my fear wanted an answer. And I just needed to trust God. I just needed to walk forward in faith. And ironically, it's been years and years and years and there still is no diagnosis. So maybe it's out there. But I'm sure glad I haven't wasted the last 15 years chasing that because it would have stolen joy and worship from me. So the last section that we're going to look at, because again, there's an opportunity. Trials create a fork in the road, and that's an opportunity to honor God, or it's an opportunity, honestly, to be selfish. It's an opportunity to think selfishly, and James knows that. And so now he's going to come back and say, if at the beginning of the trial you begin to question the goodness of God, never do that because God is more good than you can imagine, and that's the focus of verses 16 through 18. So he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So the first thing he says, because again, one of the natural reactions when things don't go our way is it reveals the expectation that, well, it always should go my way. And when it doesn't, we can do what? We can question the goodness of God. And so he says in an imperative, in a command, do not be deceived. Because verses 13 through 15 speak the source of the temptation of sin in response to trial. But every good and perfect gift is from above. All good things come from God above. And the greatest example of this is what you see in verse 18. The greatest demonstration and validation of God's goodness is His bringing us forth by the word of His truth, which is a common reference to our redemption and salvation in Jesus Christ. If God did that, then His goodness can and should never be questioned, regardless of how hard life can get. Because God has fixed the deepest, the hardest, the eternal problem that we faced, that we had no ability to deal with or process or fix ourselves. And if we keep our mind there, if we remind ourselves of God's goodness, that's the greatest defense against responding poorly in trial, right? Because to question God's goodness, given the fact of all that he's done for us, is a really tragic thing. And it can take away from the worship that God is due. But the reminder of God's goodness of Scripture, the reminder of God's goodness, our own testimony, thinking back through your life, of when God has shown up over and over and over again, when God has provided, when God has healed, when God has reconciled, when God has taken care of you, reminding yourself of the goodness of God, so that when the next trial hits, when the wave comes over the boat, and you just tell yourself, but I know God is good. I know God is good. And I know God is sovereign. Which means whatever I'm dealing with, whatever I will deal with, is going through the permissive or prescriptive hands of a good God. And he has a purpose for this. And so I'm going to process it in faith won't make it easy. There's nothing easy about trials. There's nothing easy about struggle. But it's responding with a Godward orientation to understand that God has purpose in it. And that he brings glory to himself. You know, Satan's attack, the most common attack when we deal with trials in our life, is exactly this. It's to get us to begin to question the goodness of God started in the garden, right? So this is the word of Satan to Eve. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing. God doesn't have good intentions for you. I don't know if you've ever read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, if you have, but it's been a while, I tell you, it probably should be an annual read or an annual listen. And if you don't know the context of it, basically it's, it's a fictional account that he writes from the perspective of a demon who is trying to trip a believer up in his faith. And the strategies that Satan and his minions use to try to get us to take our eyes off of God and our trust away from God. And this is a, a letter from... From Screwtape to Wormwood, Wormwood is the junior, Screwtape is the senior. And he specifically talks about the, what we dealt with this morning, which are trials and our response to trials. He says this, Your recent letter concerned me. You sound pleased with the trials you were bringing your patient. You think the layoff and financial pressures and flu will automatically bring him to us. Don't you understand that as long as your patient is trusting the enemy, trials do nothing? In fact, if he's trusting the enemy, every trial will draw the patient closer to him and further from us. Remember what I taught you. If the patient just looks to the enemy with faith, even weak faith, the enemy will immediately strengthen him, comfort him, and help him. And your flaming darts will bounce off him. 
but this is your top priority. That's why you must focus all your energy on attacking his faith. Think of the beauty of this. If you can keep him from trusting the enemy, then everything that comes his way will draw him to us. Hardships will draw him to us because he will become bitter at the enemy. And joys will draw him to us because he will love them more than the enemy. So focus all your energy on attacking his faith. And we've been there. And we've felt and we've heard the lies as it relates to the way we could respond to hardship in our life. But remembering the goodness of God is a defense against that. And that trust and that faith that we have that God is, is sovereign and good over all things, even the hard things. So from an application perspective to this morning's text, you know, and, and again, I'll move fairly quickly through this, but I've always kind of in studying a text tried to think about what would God have me know, what would God have me feel, and what would God have me do? And so what would God have us know from James 9 through 18? That trials carry with it the temptation to respond selfishly and to question God's goodness. We should be aware that when hardships happen, there's a trial. The source of our temptation is evil desires within our hearts, but God's goodness on the other hand is immutable, meaning never changes, and validated by his gift of salvation. God has demonstrated his love. What are we to feel? Uh, we can feel confident that God's going to be with us in trials, that God's goodness will, will persevere. And we should be vigilant to guard our hearts against temptation when suffering. What are we to do? Uh, what suffering are you dealing with today? What's the trial in your life right now? And it might just be worth some time in prayer to say, God, how, how is my response? Am I responding in faith? And in the areas where I'm struggling to do that, God, would you please give me help and grace to respond with your goodness in mind? And then pray that God would prepare us for whatever the future holds, because we don't know what the future is going to hold. But the goodness of God will carry us, and the sovereignty of God controls all. So there is a, a song. I'm, I'm wired. I, I'm one of those people that loves, 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 loves music. I just can't make it. And so when I see the people that are gifted to make music, I, I just always thought, man, maybe in heaven some of us will get that gift that would love to have it. We don't have it. But, but music, I, I deeply connect at a heart level with music. And so a lot of times when God is teaching me, he'll teach me in song. And so there's a particular song that I, that I want you to hear, and it's about three minutes. It's uh, by a gentleman named Andrew Peterson, but it speaks exactly to this, to this text, and it speaks specifically to what we should remember and remind ourselves of when we're in trials to respond properly. So please. Oh, I love that song. Um, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know how God would use the text or the sermon but there may be someone here who just needs to hear just that. God is always good. He's always good. And if, if you're in a place where that's hard to say and hard to feel and hard to think, let your church body remind you, God is always good. All the time. And all the time, God is good. Amen. Let's pray. So Father God, we... Uh, Oh, Father, would you minister to our hearts? Because if we're not wounded now, Father, we're wounded before we will be. Father, trials are hard. Testing is tough. And Father, it's sometimes we just can't imagine how we'll bear it. But Father, you are always good. And Father, we can respond in faith, even when we control nothing. Father, even when the outcome is uncertain. Father, we can trust you. We can only trust you, Father, if you move our hearts to do so. Father, would your spirit move our hearts to respond in faith to the trials we're facing and the trials we will face. Pray that we would glorify you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.